We want to welcome this congregation on this lovely, beautiful November morning as we prepare for Thanksgiving. And I know that we all have many, many reasons to be grateful for lots and lots of things on Thanksgiving. So for and on behalf of everyone associated with this church body, we want everyone to know that we truly are so blessed in so many ways to have a church family. And we thank you for every brother and every sister and every child that's making up this body of believers. Every child is important. And every father, every mother, every young person, there's no one that does not have a unique place to fill and our hearts are grateful for each of you. May all of you be blessed as you uh, think about Thanksgiving this coming week. And we're going to ask you now, if you'd be so kind to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, we'll be in chapter 6. As we turn to Ephesians, this uh, epistle was written while St. Paul was in prison. It's one of the prison epistles. We'll be going to chapter 6 today. We'll be in chapter 6 of Ephesians, chapter 6. And then we'll be beginning to read in verse 10. Now, there's many different titles that we could use to describe what we're going to read here this morning. But as we read through the verses of Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10, uh, all the way down to uh, verse number 18, I would like each of you to imagine affixing a title to these verses. What would you want a title, what could a title be Try to imagine that you are going to give this lesson and what you would uh, give as a title. So let's all focus now on Ephesians 6, beginning in verse number 10, and let's read together. And let's see what kind of a title you might come up with. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Thank you for reading with me. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always 
with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Let us pray. God, our Father, we are humbled to read these words. We thank you, Father in heaven, for the Holy Spirit that delivered these words to St. Paul while chained in a Roman prison 2,000 years ago, and how relevant they are for us in 2022 living in the world today. Father in heaven, these words are so appropriate because they teach us so many things about the world we live in. And we are humbled today to thank you for preserving these words through over time 2,000 years now, Father in heaven. And these words are as relevant to us today as if they were written last night. So we humbly thank you we pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ that you would use these words today to help us in our journey through this life and in this world. And I humbly ask this in Christ's blessed name for the glory of his kingdom. And we pray that all opposition, every spirit, every demon, every devil, Everything that is contrary to God and His work and His kingdom and to our Lord Jesus Christ would be subdued. And thank you now, Father, for blessing this lesson in Christ's name. We ask it. Amen. amen. So now there, there could be a, how many titles can you imagine? Waging spiritual warfare might be one. Waging spiritual warfare. There's a there's a lot of different less, a lot of different ways to summarize these words. Well, we're, the, what I want to talk about, and I know there's different ways to look at this, but I've I've looked at this as the invisible cosmic world of demons, devils, angel, fallen angels, together with Satan that old serpent called the devil and Satan, otherwise known as the dragon in Scripture. And the warfare that we wrestle, it's my humble opinion, beloved, that we have a nation that is under demon possession. I believe that we now have demonic influence and demonic possession of most of those who are leading in Washington, D.C. And I believe that in the highest places of the nation that there are satanic forces that have seized those places. I believe that we are in a war for the mind and the hearts of God's children today. And the coveted goal of all the adversary forces in the world today are to, of course, prevent the kingdom of Jesus Christ from filling this earth and to op oppose every Christian who will be determined to stand for Christ in his kingdom. So let's look now. The warning here is finally, brethren, be 
strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And then we're commanded here to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against what? The wiles of the devil. Now it's interesting, when I look down at my Bible, and I'd like you to check yours out, the word devil is preceded by the marginal references in my Bible. If I go to my Bible, and I didn't know much about anything, but if I look down, these are the parallel verses that it guides me to for the word devil. It takes me to 1 Thessalonians 2.18. 2, it takes me to Revelation 20.10, and then all the way back to Genesis 3 and verse 1. How many have a Bible with a reference in it that guides you back to any of those verses? All right, there's several of you. Well, thank you. Now, we know, beloved, every word in the title that I gave you a moment ago is in the Bible, excepting for one. I titled it The Invisible Cosmic World of Demons, Devils, Fallen Angels, and that old serpent called the devil and Satan, otherwise known as the dragon. Every last word in that title is found in the Bible not once but many times, excepting for the word cosmic. Cosmic. So, we live to, today, we live in what we call the physical world. The physical world is the world we see. We see, we hear, we touch, we taste. We feel, we discern the physical reality of this world through our physical senses, and we call that world consciousness. We are aware of the world that we live in through the various physical senses that we have been given by our Creator. But there is another world that is invisible to our eyes, we do, we do not hear the other world, but we can sense that it is there. Somehow, innately, we know that beyond this world, there is another world. It is the invisible cosmic world, and the word cosmic relates to the word universe beyond this physical realm that we live in, there is a transcendent cosmic world that we do not see and hear and feel and touch. And that is the world where God lives. That is the world where angels dwell. That's the world where all the members of the church triumphant dwell. Now, in that invisible but very real world, and it's just as real as the world that you live in. In fact, when you arrive there someday, you'll think it's more real than the one you lived in. That's how real that world is. It's not a mythical world, 
There's an invisible world that is very, very real. And from time to time, Christians need to know something about that world because we are the recipients of a lot of the warfare that comes out of that world. Now that invites us, of course, to remind ourselves that all understanding of that world, that I speak now of the transcendent world that transcends this world, the invisible world, <clears throat> the other world, and the Bible speaks of the world that is to come. How many can remember? I can think of some verses right now of, the, of where the Bible says, and of the world to come. The world that is to come is that that kingdom, we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. So we know that one day heaven is coming down and when heaven comes down, that will be the fulfillment of the kingdom. That is when the kingdom will come and be present in all of its glory. Now, <clears throat> we know that the physical world we live in is a very wonderful world that God has created. His original des design is displayed everywhere in this real world that we live in. However, we sometimes forget that there's another world that, that does impact us here on this earth. And that is some of the things that are happening in the invisible world, the transcendent world that we do not see, we are experiencing here in real ways. Now you'll notice in St. Paul's epistle that he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. You see that in verse 12. Now that's a statement. What does that mean to you? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but what do we wrestle against? Principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, how many of you know that those are not flesh and blood targets that we're speaking of here in verse 12? When we wrestle against principalities, powers, and all of those kinds of opposition, we are talking about the adversarial forces that are at war with God and seeking to prevent his kingdom from coming into the earth. Now, everyone that names the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone that seeks to love God, to serve God, or to build a Christian family, or to be part of a church family, they must know and understand that they are prime targets of this invisible war because Satan and all the adversarial powers of evil do not worry about the part of the world that's already under sin. They don't worry about the people that are 
addicted to stopping at the tavern or people who are addicted to a thousand and one different addictive potentials in our world. They're concerned about the people that have made a choice to love God, to believe in Jesus Christ, build God-fearing families, and build a church and go forward with the kingdom of their God. Those are the people. Now, I might remind you of a verse that's found in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, and verse 17. Most of you have memorized it. And that verse says this, And the dragon, world of Christians do not even know that there is a spiritual being in this world called a dragon. And the dragon was wroth against the woman. The woman is Israel. I'm in Revelation 12, verse 17. The dragon was wroth with the woman Israel and went to make what? War. Make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So here's the commandments, and here's the testimony, the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments over on this wall, the Apostles' Creed. Summarize and identify the church at the end of history. They love God, they want to keep His commandments. Not for the blessings that obedience to God's law brings, but sheerly and merely for the love that's in their heart to God. They want to obey Him. And they want to confirm that with the testimonial of the historicity, the life, the sinless life, the sacrifice, the resurrection and the promise of the second coming of Christ. So that's very important. Now, as we look at these uh, verses here in Ephesians, it says that we are to take the whole armor of God. The reason I want to stress that, beloved, is because when you go into, when you become a Christian, there the adversarial world does not ask you if you're ready to battle against them. They are assuming that you are going to be fully armed and therefore they're coming against you. Now notice, it says that the armor is to have your loins girt about with truth. There is no substitute for truth. Truth is is absolute, it is not being defined one generation and then redefined in another generation. Truth is truth is truth, it is timeless. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then having on the breastplate of righteousness. That is not your righteousness, that is the righteousness of Christ through which 
we are justified and made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God, hath made him, Jesus to Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made righteous before God or in Christ. So we have to um, have the whole armor of God. Our feet have to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That means we have to be anchored. Roman soldiers wore specialized footwear that gave them a secure footing to wield the sword, to carry the shield. So their footwear planted them. How well planted are you? How strong is your faith? Can it be taken away from you? Can someone talk you out of what you believe? How well planted are you? And then taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. So that shield is called faith. Faith is to be able to overcome all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now the wicked there can be both in this world, people that are in flesh and blood, but the greater enemies you face are not visible to you. If they are demons, they are devils, they are spiritual entities in the metaphysical world beyond this world that we all have to fight against. And then we're told to take the helmet of salvation, which is the free gift from God by faith. The gift of salvation comes to you by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, by sola scriptura alone, to the love, for the love, and by the love of God alone. And then finally, praying always, with all prayer and supplication, in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. All of us have a duty to put on the full armor of God. Everybody has a duty to check your own life out and see if you're missing a part of the armor. Because as a soldier standing to fight against fighting spiritual warfare, you will only be as strong as the weakest part of the armor that you wear. So everybody needs to examine your spiritual armor. And everybody has to do that on their own. Now, let's move on. And I want to ask you a question. In the beginning, when God created the world, does the Bible tell us he created a perfect world? It does indeed. In Genesis 1, 31, God tells us that he created an absolutely perfect world. In Genesis chapter number 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He concludes that chapter with what? 
God looked at everything that he had made, and it was what? Very good. Now that really means, if you break it down in the real essence of its meaning, that everything God does is perfect. God's original design is perfection in everything that he does. So God created a perfect world. In that world that God created, there was perfection. He planted into that world a man named Adam. And Adam was a direct creation of God. God scooped up the dust of the earth. And the Lord God created, he made Adam from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So Adam was God's first created reality of our kind of people. You have not heard me say that Adam was the first that God had ever created. No. Adam and Eve were not the first people God created. And you can discover that very quickly because when Cain is cursed, he is given a mark so that other people would not kill him. His own family knew, they would know that he didn't need to be marked. They knew who Cain was. But who are all these other people that might want to kill him? Where did they come from? And when the Bible says that Cain went out and built a city, he didn't build a city without some help. And it also tells us in Genesis 4 that he married a woman, a wife. Where did she come from? Now please, please do not believe that one of his sisters who just witnessed her brother's murder, if there had been any sisters, even after Cain and Abel, that would have ever been willing to marry Cain. So there's all kinds of people that preceded Adam, but that's not the topic of their of this study, and it's not even the topic of the Bible because the Bible doesn't talk about him. It's not the purpose of the Bible to talk about anyone but the Adam kind people. Genesis 5, 1 will tell you this is the book of the generations of Adam and the day that God created man. In the likeness of man made he him male and female and so forth. So the Bible tells you, look, this is the book of Adam's people, not the book of any other people. Now, God loves the whole creation that he, that he brought into existence. There was nothing in that creation that God did not find good. Genesis 1.31, everyone that, everything that God looked at, he found to be very good. So the problem that we have, church, in Ephesians 6 here. When it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We ought to know something about the adversarial powers that we wrestle against. Would you please turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, 
We do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. You do not fight against the, med the, the adversarial forces of the world of darkness with any kind of carnal weapons. They are not even involved in the kind of spiritual warfare that we're talking about. The weapons of our warfare, I'm reading from 2 Corinthians 10, 4. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing, now listen to this, bringing every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, if, any, if, you, if everyone will be honest, this is a battle that all of us fight. We fight against negative ideas coming into our mind. We fight, we wrestle against all kinds of adversar adversarial forces and God wants us to be an overcoming, victorious Christian that is able to stand against the wiles of the devil and all the adversarial uh, forces that are coming against us. And America today is a country that has sinned and transgressed law, God's law. We have broken covenant. We have, died, we have transgressed his law. We have simply broken all connection with God himself. We have openly rejected God. We have denied that he is the creator. No country ever lived, ever existed in history that was very much more agnostic and unbelieving than America is now becoming. We are living in a pagan nation. We are living in what they call the post-Christian history of America. So our battle today, church, is a, a very severe battle because we are battling not against flesh and blood nearly so much as we are fighting against principalities, powers, and and against rulers and spiritual wickedness in high places that has nothing to do with flesh and blood. If you don't know anything about that world, you, would be, you will be ill-prepared to know how to resist it. So a logical question that arises is this. If God created a perfect world, where did sin come from? And we know what the answer to that is. Because we've read our Bible and we believe what the Bible says. The Bible in Genesis 2 plants Adam in a garden. And later on in that chapter, he gives him a helpmeet. A wonderful woman to be his helpmeet. And we are ending Genesis 2 with great joy and jubilation. Here's a man and a wife, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 2, in the close of that chapter, 
they have become one. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. One flesh. So everything is wonderful when we come to the end of Genesis 2. Adam holds a dominion. Think about it. Adam and Eve are living with conditional immortality. Think about it. They will not die if they live according to God's commandment. They come to the end of chapter 2, and they are still living in a perf perfect world. They have conditional immortality because they have the potential to sin. Amen? The potential is there, but they're without sin at the last verse in Genesis chapter number 2. Do we agree to that? Yes, we can agree on that. So they're without sin when we come to the end of chapter 2, but we don't go very far into chapter 3 before we have a problem. In fact, the problem greets us in verse 1 of chapter 3. You'll notice what it says in Genesis 3, verse 1. What does it say in Genesis 3, verse 1? It says something that we need to know. Because until a third party arrived in the Garden of Eden, everything was fine. Now, Spiritual warfare requires us to know and identify who our enemies are that we wrestle and fight against. If we do not know who these enemies are, we're going to be in trouble. Now, remember, our, our lesson is titled, The Invisible Cosmic World of Demons, Devils, Fallen Angels, and that old serpent called the devil and Satan, otherwise known as the dragon. Do you know, does everyone in this congregation know that Jesus himself waged more battle against spiritual warfare than he did against the flesh and blood of this earth? You've read the Gospels. You know how many times Jesus cast out demons or they're sometimes called devils or sometimes evil spirits from people. How many are familiar with, enough with the Bible to know that what I'm telling you is God's gospel truth? Jesus again and again waged warfare against spirits of evil, demons, devils. And he knew and delivered people from demon influence, from demon, demonic possession. The ministry of Jesus spent more time in waging spiritual warfare than Jesus waged with those that he greeted with the whip when he drove the money changers out of the temple. Jesus waged war against the enemies of God in this world, but he waged a fiercer battle against those 
in the other world that came from the other world of darkness. Now in Genesis 3 verse 1, the Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Thou shalt not eat of every tree of the garden. So there's something going on here that's very clever, isn't there? Here comes a visitor. Who is the visitor that comes to the first man, Adam? And why would he want to bring Adam down? Why would a visitor come into the garden and want to disturb the paradise of that place? It is because there is a warfare that is underway. Now I want, I'm so grateful for you people to think about all this because if we say that sin entered into the world, into the race of Adam in Genesis 3, we would be right. The choice that Adam and Eve made by the exercise of their free will, they chose to believe that God's truth was not absolute. God had said, Thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could not partake of that tree in the day that they were to eat, uh, to, in the day that they ate of that tree, they would die. But you know the story here that unfolds in Genesis is that God's absolute truth, His command word, is challenged. Ye shall not surely die. Those words are going to be uttered by this serpent. He's also going to promise Eve that by eating this tree, she can become God, knowing good and evil. So we have a real battle that's ongoing here. And it's good that we know that when this battle ends, that God is very much in charge because he calls a court and God is the judge and the jury. And he holds the feet of the serpent to the fire. He holds the feet, the feet of the woman and then the man. All must give an accounting. So that part of the sin problem we understand. That part of the spiritual warfare we understand. Because we all know that we have to wrestle against our own sin nature. St. Paul said it this way in Romans 7. He said in verse 12, wherefore the law is holy, the commandment holy, and just and good. In verse 12 he says, for the law is spiritual, but I am carnal sold under sin. Beginning in verse 19, Romans 7, Paul says, 
The good that I would, I do not. But the evil would that I would not, that I do. Now it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Paul yearned to do that which is right. But there was another spirit within him that he had to wrestle against. Now people, that spirit that we wrestle against is not Satan. You can never say Satan made me do it. That is a misnomer. We are responsible for the sin we commit. It's made out of our own will. Now that part of our warfare we can deal with. The part of our warfare, our warfare that most Christians, and I'll retract that and say that many Christians do not understand, is that there's another world of warfare that we must battle against. So that we all must come to the understanding that when Jesus said to one of the apostles, Get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus is rebuking an adversarial force from the outer world of darkness. When Jesus is being tempted as the second Adam in the Gospel of Matthew Mark and Luke, Jesus is called the second Adam. The first Adam was tempted by the tempter. The second Adam, Jesus, is also going to be by tested. Now the first Adam fell. The first Adam fell and yielded to the temptation of the serpent. But to the glory of God, the second Adam stood on the word of God and in the face of the adversarial tempter that came into the desert where he was fasting, he said in response to the tempter who said, turn this stone into bread. And Jesus looked at the tempter and said, It is written, it is written. He resorted to the word of God in every case. So everyone here should know that the greatest weapon you have to come against spiritual warfare is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. There is power in God's word, church. God spake the world into existence with words. And the Bible is a power-packed book of spiritual strength. When you read the Bible, on occasion you ought to read it out loud. Because you're speaking the word, you're seeing the word, and God loves to hear his word. There's power in that word. Now, if you go to Genesis 3 and verse 1, there's a lot packed into those verses, church. And they, they could occupy hours of Bible study, which we're, you know, we're helpless to even think about.
But I want you to drop over to your Bible, go over to Matthew chapter number 4, and notice what we read here in Matthew 4. Matthew chapter number 4. The Bible says this, verse 1. Then was Jesus led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. The word tempted could be tested. Tempted, tested of who? The devil. Interesting. Tempted of the devil. Now I'm looking over to see what my center reference tells me to think about there. Well, my center reference gives the Greek definition of the word devil, the accuser, and so forth. And then it goes back to Genesis 3, verse 1. Isn't that interesting? Takes me back to Genesis 3, 1. The first Adam was tempted in the Garden of Eden. The second Adam is tested in the desert. And the tempter came to Jesus and challenged him to turn the, the uh, stone into bread. Now notice what verse 5 says. Now we're going to give the tempter in chapter 4 a name. He's going to have a name. We're not going to call him the tempter all the time in this little scene. He is now called the devil. And the devil is in dialogue with Jesus, just like the serpent was in dialogue with the woman. Now, Revelation 12, 9, and Revelation 20, verse 2, describes the serpent as that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Now that's interesting because God tells us twice who the serpent of Genesis 3-1 is. And it also identifies the same creature in Matthew 4 and all the other examples where the great temptation is recorded in the New Testament. So it's telling us that while sin began in the Garden of Eden and entered into the race of Adam, the question still remains unresolved as to where did the serpent come from and how is he the leader of this cosmic force of outer darkness that's in the world. So that tells us that the original sin of Adam is in the garden and disobedience to God. But what about this creature that entered into the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3? Same creature, the tempter that, that tempted Jesus in Matthew chapter number 4. Where did that all originate? So that invites us to ask ourselves, when did sin enter into the universe? When We know when sin entered into this real world that we live in. But when did sin enter into the universe? Some of you probably have a thought about that. In fact, several of you may have already concluded that long ago. 
But let me ask you this. Let's assume that you're reading along in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, and you come to a little verse that says, Jesus is speaking, and he says to his disciples, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, Jesus would not say anything that was not true. He said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, that's a significant statement. Because it's taking us into this metaphysical, transcendent, cosmic world where a, a warfare was once waged. If we do not know anything at all about that, how then would we ever imagine that the serpent himself having been created good. Now listen, hold on to what you already believe, that everything God created was good. God did not create anything that was not good. So every adversarial force in the heavens, all fallen angels, and any other power in that world was once good. Sin made entry into that world before it made entry into Adam and Eve down on earth. Something preceded the temptation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, verse 1. Something else is going on in another part of, the, of God's cosmos. And it was the battle that was going on in heaven. Now let's, Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. So open your Bible for just a moment as time eludes us now quickly. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter number 28. In that remarkable chapter... This prophet, Ezekiel, is going to tell us something. First of all, he's going to start out with discussing the prince of Tyrus. And he says about the prince of Tyrus, I'm in Ezekiel 28, verse 2. Thus saith the Lord God, Thou hast said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God. In the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man and not God, though, thy set, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. So this was a very wicked king who had exalted himself, and he imagined himself to be God. Now, as we read on in Ezekiel 28, the Bible is going to reveal to us something about an event that happened long before the tempter ever came to the Garden of Eden. So let's read about it. Verse 13, now we're reading about someone that says, 
God says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. So is it a reasonable question to raise, who is this? Who are they talking about? We know it wasn't the prince of Tyrus. He hadn't lived for hundreds or thousands of years to have been in the Garden of Eden. So we're talking about somebody else. We're talking about a spiritual being. Now, all of you know, if you have studied angels, you know that angels are not mortal. They are not subject to death. Angels were created immortal. They were created masculine in gender. However, they have the, pro, the, the potential to mate with women on this earth. And that's one of the events that brought on the Genesis flood. See, the Bible is a very interesting book. And it's not a book of fairy tales. It's a book of absolute truth that is arming God's children to know the adversarial forces they face in this world. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. It's now going to describe someone. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes. That's music. That's the origin of the bagpipe was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Now, wait a minute. Hold on. God created everything good, including the personage we're reading about now. Created good, but will not stay good. Let's read on. Thou art the anointed cherub. Now, how many of you know that a cherub is an angel? We're not talking about mortals. We are no longer talking about mortals here. A cherub is not a mortal. It's an order of the angels. There are all kinds of orders in the hierarchy of angels. There's cherubims, seraphims, principalities, powers, dominions, thrones. All kinds of different orders of angels. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. I set, set thee so, thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways. From the day that thou wast created. We're not talking about anyone uncreated here. God is the only uncreated being. This is a created cherub. Till what? Iniquity was found in thee. Go on to verse 17. It tells us what happened. Your, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. What we are looking at here, church, is the hierarchy of angels at the apex or the top of that hierarchy was an archangel that ruled all other angels. 
Now, I do not know how many of you have studied angel kind. I have a little book here that I would be very happy to give any, anyone. I'd give it to you. There's a lot of them available. It's called Angelology, the study of the spirit beings called angels. It's an indispensable part of what is in the Bible. You must know about the angels because angels interact with people here on this earth. And there's vindication of that in the Bible. A lot of confirmation. So it says in verse 17, Ezekiel 28, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thyself by reason of thy brightness. This archangel, we now call him Satan, the tempter. That old serpent called the devil and Satan. The dragon. St. Paul calls him the god of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Peter calls him a lion in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the lion, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. St. John the Apostle calls him the prince of this world twice. James in chapter 4 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. Resist him and he will flee from you. Every one of the apostles that wrote and contributed to the New Testament have emphasized how we war against our adversary called Satan. Now Satan is the leader of the demons the, and the evil spirits or the devils. The word demon, devil, and evil spirit are synonymous in their identification. And the demons themselves, now, now listen carefully. Demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim genets, giants of Genesis 6. When the daughters of Adam kind cohabited with the angels, they produced what is the Bible calls the Nephilim, the giants. When those giants died, their disembodied spirits became demons. And demons are always looking for a body to inhabit. And that is why when Jesus drove the demons, they looked for a body, and Jesus drove them into a herd of swine. 2,000 swine ran into the ocean or the water and perished. The people that owned them were not very happy. They lost all their livelihood. So we've come now to the end of time on our clock here. And we've dipped our toe into the water. We actually never went into the swimming pool. 
We only dipped our little toe into the edge of the water. So as you leave here today, remember, the goal is to have everyone put on the full armor of God. Because I believe we live in a nation. We live in a country. The news media is under demonic control. Demons, devils, and adversarial powers in high places are now in America. And God is calling His people to a life of trust in Jesus Christ, a life of faithfulness, a life of serious obedience to His law, to His word, and to His truth. And God would have every one of us Focus on building a godly family. Focus on your family. Don't spend time looking at conspiratorial theories that will get you nowhere. The world is full of conspiracy theories. God gave each of us a responsibility. It's called our family. It's called our family. It's called our church. Every moment you waste on conspiratorial thinking and watching and believing is a moment, an hour away from your family, away from your focus as a God-fearing, Bible-believing Christian. So let's all keep focused. Focus not on what the evil are doing, but what God has commanded us to do. And the final statement is this. If we will do what God tells us to do, then God will see that everything works out good for those he loves. Don't let anyone take your focus away from God and his word and our responsibility. Let's all stand.